morning. My name is John Matthews. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to bring him glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me, please? Father, as we now turn our attention, our hearts to your word, God, would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us minds that can comprehend and hearts that can embrace your gospel? Oh, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Through the millennia of human history, there have been numerous instances in which it was thought that the end of all things was at hand. Some have made confident predictions about an exact date when the world would end at least until it didn't and they had to go recalculate. Others have made scientific observations that have led them to conclude that the human population or perhaps even the earth itself isn't sustainable. But then 50 years or so goes by and here we are more numerous than we were. Anyone, anyone out there remember Y2K? Some of you youngsters don't. Basically, uh, it was supposed to go back to the year zero in computer world, and everything was supposed to crash. Civilization was supposed to come crashing down. Everything was supposed to come to an end. Or the Mayan calendar, December 21st, 2012, where the world was supposed to end again um, because some ancient civilization that had ended itself over a 1,000 years previously said it would. Now, Maybe you were someone who doubted these things, um, these predictions, before they actually failed to come about. But, of course, now we all can look back with them with a little bit of humor, right? But there have also been some events in history that, for those who lived through them, seemed very much like the world was actually ending. And one such event occurred in North America during the time of the Revolutionary War, and it has become known as the Dark Day. Now, I was not familiar with this. Maybe you are. But let me tell you a little bit about this. On May 19th, 1780, around 9 a.m., darkness mysteriously fell over all of New England and a pretty good part of Canada in the Ontario area. One account of this day that was said to need a candle lit to see anything at noon also said this. 
The dark day inspired terror, panic, and puzzlement. Men prayed and women wept. Thousands left off work and took to taverns and churches for solace. Children were sent home from school. Bewildered chickens went to their roosts. Frightened cattle returned to their stalls. The night birds whistled and frogs peeped as they did at midnight. A 19th century historian, Sidney Purley, wrote, A dark, dense cloud gradually rose out of the west and spread itself until the heavens were entirely covered, except at the horizon where a narrow rim of light remained. George Washington actually recorded these events in his diary when he wrote, Heavy and uncommon kind of clouds, dark and at the same time a bright and reddish kind of light intermixed with them, brightening and darkening alternately. Many people during that day, understandably, thought the world was coming to an end. And apparently some preachers actually even declared that it was on that day. But I'm going to save the rest of the story for later. For now, it's enough for all of these would-be doomsday instances to cause us to pause and ask an important question. When the end of all things seems like it is at hand, how do I respond? When the end of all things seems to be at hand, how do I respond? Now, when Peter writes the end of all things is at hand, he isn't predicting a date that the world is going to end. Peter had witnessed the events of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension that inaugurated the last days, though. And he had heard Jesus say that he would come again to bring his disciples to be where he was. And thus, Peter understood that Jesus' return could happen at any moment. And so, in these verses before us today, in 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter encourages believers to live with a sense of urgency as we anticipate Christ's return. Today, we're going to consider five things that should characterize our lives as believers as we live believing that the end of all things really is at hand. And the first of these we see in verse 7, which says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. If you're taking notes, our first heading today is purposeful prayer. But what exactly is that, purposeful prayer? Is it prayer with the purpose of always getting exactly what we pray for? Is it bending God's will to our own as if he's our cosmic butler, waiting on our every need? We might not admit it, but isn't that how we approach prayer at times? especially in times of urgency, when we didn't study enough for that test, when the diagnosis is bad and interferes with our plans, when we don't get the promotion that we had earned, when the end seems to be at hand. We want a quick fix to our problem so that we can get on about our busy lives. But in fact, our hectic lives often lead us away from prayer, not to it. We we're tempted to think, 
I don't have time to pray because of how much I have to do. But this is clearly not what Peter has in mind here, is it? Faced with urgency, Peter instructs us to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Rather than being self-centered and frantic. We may think we can't afford to take the time to pray, but sober-mindedness actually shows us that we can't afford not to take the time to pray. John Wesley perhaps understood this as well as anyone. And he said, I have so much to do that I spend several hours in prayer before I'm able to do it. Pausing to pray is the proper course of action in the midst of urgency, in the midst of crisis, and in the midst of suffering, but also in the midst of our busyness. In fact, it should be the default for busy Christians. But unfortunately, we don't just drift toward this kind of prayerfulness, do we? And that's why it requires self-control and sober-mindedness so that we can rightly see how vital prayer is. In the New American Standard Bible, the version that Pastor KJ preaches from, the phrase, for the sake of your prayers, here in the ESV, is actually translated, for the purpose of prayer. For Christians, prayer is itself the purpose of being self-controlled and sober-minded. A reactive and haphazard life, praying only when it is convenient or when we feel like it, will never result in a strong, purposeful prayer life. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said, it is one of the temptations of the devil to tell you not to pray when you do not feel like praying. Pray twice as much then. You see, when we are purposeful in our approach to prayer, it actually begins to produce God's purpose in us. This is the purpose of purposeful prayer. Prayer that yields greater self-control and more sober-mindedness. Prayer that causes us to rely on the Lord rather than on ourselves. To cast our anxieties upon him rather than to be overwhelmed by them. Prayer that says, thy kingdom come, not my kingdom come. That says, thy will be done, not my will be done. Prayer that delights to be in the presence of the giver more than any earthly presence that he might give us. Prayer that longs to know the healer, not merely experience the healing. Prayer that seeks the blesser, not merely the blessing. Yes, the Lord is the most generous Father who delights in giving us good gifts. Jesus himself tells us this. But the greatest gift that he can give to us is himself. And through Christ, we have been offered unrestricted, unfettered, and timeless access to him. Yes, he hears our cries to him in our moments of crisis. Yet it is him who we need in the midst of our crises, far more than we need those crises to be resolved. With the end of all things at hand, we should be more 
purposeful in prayer, not less. Knowing that not a single millisecond of that time will be wasted. This is the first thing that we need to see that characterizes or should characterize our lives as believers. The second, though, is merciful love. Verse 8 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. If you read the New Testament, the overarching theme for all interaction between and among believers is love. This thought is repeated over and over again by the New Testament authors, probably because Jesus himself said it. A new commandment I give to you, John 13, 34, and 35, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. We should press on in love for one another because it is a witness to the world and an exaltation of Christ as his return draws near. But our earnest love for one another is also a, of great benefit to us, his church, as we bear each other's burdens, as we weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, as we encourage one another to grow, not to not grow weary in doing good, and all the more in the midst of suffering, as we heard from last week's text. Go back and read it if you were not here for it. But according to Jesus, our love for one another should stand out to the world, stand in contrast to it, because we should love not as the world loves, but as Christ has first loved us. Christ's love by his shed blood has mercifully covered our sin. And from that, we are then able to lovingly extend mercy and forgiveness to others, especially to other believers when they sin against us. C.S. Lewis said, To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And if you haven't figured it out yet, I kind of like Spurgeon and Lewis. Um, so this is me coming clean about that. Um, the thing is, no one... No one will ever sin against you or me to the extent that we have sinned against God. Therefore, as Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The forgiveness we've received should restrain our desire for revenge and instead lead us to pursue reconciliation. It should cause us to resist the urge to say, let me tell you what so-and-so did to me. It doesn't seek to make an offense known to everyone, but seeks out the offender with the goal of making peace. This doesn't mean that we gloss over or ignore sin in the lives of our fellow believers either. We are commanded to hold one another accountable and reprove one another according to God's word. But here's what it does mean. It means we are to let go of any perceived right that we think we have to withhold forgiveness for the wrong that has been done to us. How different this is from the world. 
I have a right to be angry, it contends. I have a right to let everyone know how he hurt me. I have a right to get revenge against her. But as believers, we must remember that Christ willingly gave up his rights. In stepping into time and space, the eternal word gave up his right to remain in his glory with the Father. The king of creation gave up his right to be served by that creation and instead has served us. In dying a gruesome death on the cross, the author of life gave up his right to life and offered us it as a ransom for many. When I stop and consider the vastness of my sin against God and the cost that he paid to offer me his mercy, no offense toward me is too great. No price should be too high to prevent me from forgiving my brother or my sister. Rather, we all should be eager to extend the same merciful love that we have been shown in Christ. So we see first that our lives should be characterized by purposeful prayer, secondly, by merciful love, and thirdly, by joyful hospitality. Verse 9 says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality is not merely an act or a characteristic that is to be limited to the members of the committee that bears that name. You know what I'm talking about, Baptist. (laughs) Rather, Peter says hospitality is to be shown by all believers to all believers. When our time seems short, it is so easy to think, I don't have time to show hospitality. One day I will, but not now. We may think, I don't have time to clean my house to make it presentable. But is that really an excuse or is that just our pride? We may think our afternoon is far too busy to invite that new family that's visiting to eat lunch with us after worship. But do we really just not want the possibility of things being awkward? What if if things are awkward if we ask somebody and show hospitality and we don't have anything in common. But if you're all believers, do you not have Christ in common? And is he not enough? Of course he is. He's more than enough. And to be sure, showing hospitality is very often difficult and awkward, especially when we have obvious differences with others. And if it wasn't difficult, why do you think Peter said we're to do it without grumbling? We're not to be like the Israelites. But how often is that our attitude? Out of obligation, not joy. But it's joy that God seeks for us. Our natural inclination is to keep to what we know and what is comfortable. But Christ calls us Out of our comfort, and he commands us to welcome our neighbors, no matter how different they may be from us. In the world, differences often divide us and cause us to display 
hostility rather than hospitality? Are we to follow the world and its example? No. Christians are to stand in stark contrast to the world because we were once far off, Ephesians 2.13 tells us, but now have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And verse 14 of Ephesians 2 goes on to say that Christ has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that would ever seek to separate us as believers. If I am to believe that Christ has welcomed me to his table, and he has, then Christ has also welcomed every other believer, and so should I. Anyone who is welcome at Christ's table should be welcome at our table. For this is pleasing to the Lord, and it will bring so much joy to us. Joyful hospitality is, therefore, our third heading. And our fourth is grateful stewardship. Verse 10 through the first part of verse 11 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. As the late great Bob Dylan sang, you're going to have to serve somebody. And who better for us to serve than our brothers and sisters in the faith? Serving one another is not God's recommendation, church. It's his requirement for us. And this is not a burden, but it is indeed a blessing. If you are born again, God has given you incredible, unique gifts to serve his church. The gifts, talents, skills, and abilities that believers are given, whether it be when we were born or when we were born again, these are a means of God's grace to us. And it should be our supreme joy to be good and faithful stewards of such grace. We shouldn't take what our master has entrusted to us and bury it like the wicked and slothful servant of Jesus' parable of the talents. Rather, we are to endeavor to bear much fruit for our Lord. When we don't use our gifts, something is missing in the church. We're, we're missing out on the joy of serving and pleasing our master, and most importantly, God's glory is missing from being fully displayed in our lives. Hear me, beloved. God has gifted and equipped you to serve his church. Be a good steward of that grace. A steward doesn't own what he or she possesses, yet is fully responsible for it. Our gifts are not our own. They're not ours to use as we please but we should use them to please our master. In fact, to be a Christian is to acknowledge that nothing, nothing is truly ours except one thing, our sin. My breath, each beat of my heart is not mine. It is a gift from above. Nothing is truly mine except my sin. And praise be to God that Jesus has taken that away from us on the cross. 
So then, we are the owners of nothing on our own. And yet, at the same time, in Christ, we are heirs of all things. Thus, whoever speaks should remember the Lord's question to Moses at the burning bush. Who has made man's mouth? And then we should go forth to humbly speak as one who speaks the oracles of God. Those of us who have been entrusted to teach in the church must remain fully reliant upon God's word. And we must never presume to speak from our own knowledge nor trust in our own understanding. Likewise, Peter says, whoever serves should do so by the strength that God provides. And they should remember who it is that has knit us together in our mother's womb. Who it is that has given strength to our bodies and breath to our lungs. As stewards, we recognize and rejoice in our dependence upon God's word and upon God's strength as we use the gifts he has graciously given us to serve one another. Whether it is a natural ability that has come when we were born, or what we might call a supernatural ability that comes only through the Holy Spirit. Everything that we have been given, every ability that every human has ever possessed is a gift of God's grace to be used for God's glory. The God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills owns every gift, talent, and ability given to every person to ever take a breath. If you are good with numbers, then use it to serve Christ's church. If you're good at writing, use it to serve God's church. If you are a great musician, use it to serve Christ's church. By serving one another, we actually become extensions of Christ's service to us using the gifts God has graciously given us to serve our fellow believers is one of the primary ways that our lives give God the glory that he rightfully deserves. Therefore, let us do it joyfully. And this brings us to our final heading of the day, rightful glory. The second half of verse 11 says, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. From in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth to today with the end of all things at hand, God's glory is the chief end of our lives and indeed of all of creation. We do not exist for our own glory, but for his the world may say, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But the church should say, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Purposeful prayer is of great benefit to us, indeed. But its ultimate purpose is God's glory. Merciful love, joyful hospitality, and grateful stewardship as we serve one another build up the church but most of all, they bring glory to God. When we fall prey to this temptation that comes off in our lives 
to go and to live for our own glory. We are actually robbing God of his rightful glory. Abraham Kuyper was once in the 1900s um, a prime minister of the Netherlands. And he insightfully said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, over, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Not a square inch. And church, it is our supreme privilege and should be our supreme joy to bring God the glory that rightfully belongs to him. All the instruction that Peter has given up to this point culminates into this one thing, that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And like Peter, this should cause us to break forth into praise as we add our amen to the apostles' words. So I told you I would finish the story later, and it's later. Um, And you've probably by now figured out that the world did not end on May the 19th, 1780. If not, spoiler alert, there you go. But you may not know that it was over 200 years later before the actual cause of the dark day was actually confirmed. Scientific research into some old trees in the Algonquin Highlands of Ontario concluded that the dark day resulted from an enormous forest fire that happened there in that forest, in which the smoke then mixed with a very dense fog on a very already overcast day. Okay, so we we get it, right? What's the point? Well, there is a far more important and relevant detail to what we are considering today. See, in Connecticut, the state council was in session that day. And many members of that council who were Christians and professing Christians at least, feared that the day of judgment was at hand and they clamored to adjourn the session. School was out, people were going out to the pubs, people were going to church. What are we doing here was the thought. But one member named Abraham Davenport earned well-deserved fame for his response. And it is what we need to take note of here as we conclude. He said, I am against adjournment. The day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there's no cause for an adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. Church, if our master returns in our lifetime, may we be found doing our duty, expectantly awaiting his return as we commit ourselves in self-control and sober-mindedness to prayer as we serve one another, showing hospitality, merciful love, and good stewardship of the grace he has shown us, all for his glory. Today, you and I may utter with our minds or maybe even with our mouths, our amen to Peter's words. But the truest form of our amen can take 
um, comes as this gathering ends. The truest form of our amen comes as our time together concludes. As we go to our homes, as we go off to our jobs, to our classes, to our schools, to the marketplaces in which we shop, until we are gathered again here together. How we live from Sunday lunch today until Sunday school next week, that is the amen that brings God the most glory and brings us the most joy. For some of you here today, this may be the joy that you've realized is missing from your life because you have not yet believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. If today you, though, hear his voice calling to you, do not harden your heart. Come to him in faith. Receive forgiveness of your sin and begin living for the one who you were created to glorify. Today, if others of you feel convicted because maybe your life hasn't been characterized by one or maybe even any of these things we've looked at today, there's hope. There's hope. The same Peter who wrote these words that have spurred on believers for nearly two millennia now, that same Peter is the one who failed in every single one of these areas. And like him, you can be restored by the resurrected Christ. So, don't let your conviction weigh you down as you continue down that same path. But let the Holy Spirit lead you into repentance at God's throne of grace. It's far more important, Peter would tell us, how we finish than how we begin. So, begin finishing well today. For Christ's return and the end of all things, as we know them, is at hand. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to the conclusion of our time today as a church gathered in your name, may the words that you have inspired to be written down to instruct us, may they be what spurs us on to live lives of purpose, of urgency, and of glory to your name. And thank you, O oh Lord, that you have so designed things that our greatest joy is intrinsically tied to your greatest glory. Lord, help us to see that today as we respond and as we depart. For your glory is all that this life is worth living for.